Genesis 41, verses 1 to 32. After two whole years, Pharaoh dreamed that he was standing by the Nile. And behold, there came up out of the Nile seven cows, attractive and plump, and they fed in the reed grass. And behold, seven other cows, ugly and thin, came up out of the Nile after them and stood by the other cows on the bank of the Nile. And the ugly, thin cows ate up the seven attractive plump cows. And Pharaoh awoke, and he fell asleep and dreamed a second time. And behold, seven ears of grain, plump and good, were growing on one stalk. And behold, after them sprouted seven ears, thin and blighted by the east wind. And the thin ears swallowed up the seven plump full ears. And Pharaoh awoke, and behold, it was a dream. So in the morning his spirit was troubled, and he sent and called for all the magicians of Egypt and all its wise men. Pharaoh told them his dreams, but there was none who could interpret them to Pharaoh. Then the chief cupbearer said to Pharaoh, I remember my offenses today. When Pharaoh was angry with his servants and put me and the chief baker in custody in the house of the captain of the guard, we dreamed on the same night, he and I, each having a dream with its own interpretation. A young Hebrew was there with us, a servant of the captain of the guard. When we told him, he interpreted our dreams to us, giving an interpretation to each according to his dream. And as he interpreted to us, so it came about. I was restored to my office, and the baker was hanged. Then Pharaoh sent and called Joseph, and they quickly brought him out of the pit. When he had shaved himself and changed his clothes, he came in before Pharaoh. And Pharaoh said to Joseph, I have had a dream. And there is no one who can interpret it. I have heard it said of you that when you hear a dream, you can interpret it. Joseph answered Pharaoh, It is not in me. God will give Pharaoh a favorable answer. Then Pharaoh said to Joseph, Behold, in my dream I was standing on the banks of the Nile. Seven cows, plump and attractive, came up out of the Nile and fed in the reed grass. Seven other cows came up after them, poor and very ugly and thin, such as I had never seen in all the land of Egypt. And the thin, ugly cows ate up the first seven plump cows. But when they had eaten them, no one would have known that they had eaten them, for they were still as ugly as the beginning. Then I awoke. I also saw in my dream seven ears growing on one stalk, full and good. Seven ears withered, thin, and blighted by the east wind sprouted after them. And the thin ears swallowed up the seven good ears. And I told it to the magicians, but there was no one who could explain it to me. Then Joseph said to Pharaoh, The dreams of Pharaoh are one. God has revealed to Pharaoh 
what he is about to do. The seven good cows are seven years, and the seven good years are seven years. The dreams are one. The seven lean and ugly cows that came up after them are seven years, and the seven empty ears blighted by the east wind are also seven years of famine. It is as I told Pharaoh. God has shown to Pharaoh what he is about to do. There will come seven years of great plenty throughout all the land of Egypt. But after them, there will arise seven years of famine, and all the plenty will be forgotten in the land of Egypt. The famine will consume the land, and the plenty will be unknown in the land by reason of the famine that will follow, for it will be very severe. And the doubling of Pharaoh's dream means that the thing is fixed by God, and God will short, shortly bring it about. This is the word of the Lord. Let's just bow in a word of prayer, shall we, for Pastor Paul. Father, thank you so much for your word. Thank you for the truth that is in it. And Father, now as Pastor Paul comes and speaks to us what you have placed upon his heart, may our ears be open to listen. May our hearts be open to hear and to put into practice what we hear from you today in your precious name. Amen. I wanted to just take a couple minutes and do a quick overview because the kids are with us today and uh, who knows, maybe you've not been here for five or six weeks so you don't really know where uh, we've been coming from or what we've been doing, but as a church family, we've been talking about the first book of Genesis, particularly the last uh, chapters from 37 to the end. And the book of Genesis has a lot of things in it, but one of the stories that it contains is the book of Joseph. Uh, some of you might remember the story of Joseph because he had a coat of many colors. One of the things, though, about this uh, particular story of Joseph is we often forget that it's really about a bigger story, which is the story of his father, Jacob. And you can find that it says in uh, Genesis 37, verse 1, where this story says that this is the story of the generations of Jacob. And so Joseph is just part of a bigger story of what God is doing in the life of a man that he had promised to bless. The man's name was Jacob. But it's even part of a much, much bigger story than what God is doing in Joseph's life and what God is doing in Jacob's life. More importantly, it's a story that tells us about God and how God keeps his promises and that God has the ability to keep his promises. And because God can make a promise and keep it, then he tells us you can trust him because of that. And God has the ability to keep his promises, every single one of them, because this is his world. He made this world and everything in it. There is nothing in this world, in the heavens above, on the earth that we walk on, or the sea that we might swim in, that God has not made. Because God has made it, he guides it, he controls it, he directs it, and because he guides it and controls it and directs it, he can make it do what he wants it to do. And so his promises are sure because God owns everything and guides everything and directs everything. We've been talking about um, uh, trying to understand the story of Joseph, and we've been using a big word. It's not a word that's found in the Bible, but it's a word that describes one of the realities of the Bible, and that word is the word called providence. Now, Christina sent me a, a, a Slack message earlier this week, and I don't know where it came from. Out of the blue, she simply said to me, Paul, 
How would you describe the doctrine of providence to your grandchildren? And so this is what I wrote to her off the top of my head. So if you're here today and you want to know what the doctrine of providence is, this is what I said. Your mom and dad look after you and also your brothers and sisters every single day. They make sure that your house is warm, that you have clothes that are clean and that fit. They make sure that you have food to eat. They keep you safe from things that might hurt you and look after you even when you're sick. They know when you need to go to school. They might even be planning your next family holiday. You might not know a lot about it, but they know exactly where you're going and what you're going to do on that holiday. And they might even be planning for you to go to university one day or trade school. They do all this because they're smart and because they love you so much and because of that you can trust them. Your heavenly father though created you and made you and not only you but everything in the sky above, everything in this world that we see and everything in the sea and that swims in it. And he feeds and clothes and protects and guides everything that he created because he cares for it. Nothing in your life or in this world happens by accident, even when they are bad things. God is so powerful and so wise that he has a plan for you, just like your earthquake escape plan at school. He has a plan for the whole world. He is strong enough, powerful enough, wise enough to make sure that everything in his plan will happen. You can trust God's plan. That's what we've been talking about as we come to the story of Joseph, is the providence of God, the ability of God, and the power of God to keep his promises. And so he said, well, how does that relate to Joseph? Well, the promise that God is, or the things that God is working out in the life of Joseph are the result of a promise that God made hundreds of years earlier. It's hard for us to wrap our head around those kind of time frames, but hundreds of years earlier, God had talked to Joseph's great-great-grandfather. And he had told to Joseph's great-great-grandfather that one day his great-great-grandfather would have so many descendants, such a big family, that they would number more than the stars of the heavens. But he also said to Joseph's great-great-grandfather that the next 140 or next 430 years would be difficult and they would end up in the land of Egypt, where there they would be slaves, but at the end of their slavery, they would leave really, really rich. So you wonder, well, how is that ever going to happen? How can God look 430 years down the road and say exactly what will happen? Well, because he is powerful and wise and smart. You think, well, this is kind of a crazy promise because um, you weren't here when we talked about this, but we looked at um, uh, Joseph's family. And Joseph had a nutty family. In fact, he had a bizarre family. In fact, he had a really, really bizarre family. And you look at his family and you wonder, how in the world will God ever be able to do what he promised? And not only that, Joseph's brothers hated him so much that they wanted to kill him. But God was merciful and wise, and instead of allowing them to kill him, they sold him as a slave instead. Their brother then was taken down to Egypt, and there he was bought by a really, really rich man. And the rich man put him to work in his house, and Joseph did such a good job 
at working, and God blessed Joseph in such a big way that this man, Potiphar, put him in charge of his whole, whole house. One day, there was a situation where Potiphar's wife wanted to have sexual relations with Joseph, and Joseph refused, and so she falsely accused him of rape, and he ended up in jail. While he was in jail, two men were also sent to jail because they had ticked off the king. We call him Pharaoh. And one night, they both had dreams. I don't know if you've ever had dreams, but they both had dreams, and these dreams were so real that they scared them. And Joseph saw that they were scared. You know, sometimes when you look scared, somebody can look at you and they say, are you all right? They were scared. And so they said, well, we had these dreams and we don't know what they mean. Well, Joseph said, I can tell you what they mean because God will tell me what they mean. And so they told their dreams to Joseph. He interpreted the dreams and three days later, their dreams came true. Joseph then asked the one person whose dream he told came true. When you get back to Pharaoh, remember me. I'm in jail. I'm not here um, because of anything I've done, and I want to get out. Well, two whole years later, Joseph is still in jail. As we think about Egypt, it's hard for us to sort of understand the land of Egypt um, to get a perspective of it. People describe Egypt during these centuries as no land compared to it. Only perhaps Babylon that came a couple hundred years later was even close to the splendor of Egypt. It was a place of really great worldwide influence. It had educational advancement. This was a time around when the pyramids were built, and so they were, we still don't even know how they built the pyramids. They were really strong militarily. They had a really big army, and they had a lot of money. And so we find Joseph alive in Egypt. He's in another world. And we ask ourselves then, okay, Joseph is now in Egypt. Is God able to help Joseph in Egypt the same way that he helped Joseph when he lived in the tents with his father? Is God able to hold his own? Is, is God able to, to stand up in the court of Pharaoh, the most powerful leader in the world? Or is God intimidated by Pharaoh? When, when, when Joseph found his way in Pharaoh's court, was God all of a sudden saying, uh-oh, what am I supposed to do for Joseph now? Because he's in the presence of a really, really strong king. Is God just the God of the Hebrews? Or you might say, is God just the God of my mom and dad? Or is God just the God of me? Or is actually God the God of the whole world? Or one last question. Does the world stage, we look at America, we look at Europe, we look at North Korea, you might have heard these things on the news. On this big world stage, is God able to hold his own? Or is he intimidated by President Trump or Prime Minister Trudeau or any other leader that you might hear on the news that your parents listens to? See, these are really, really important questions. Because we live and, li live and work in a world and we go to schools where nobody talks about God anymore. They don't talk about God. They don't think about God. And sometimes they even make fun of God. We live in a province. We live in a country where God has been pushed to the sidelines. He's not part of the discussions that we have anymore. And so we have to ask ourselves from time to time then, so is the God of your mom and dad just a God of your house? 
Is that as big as his influences go? Is, is the God that you pray to and read your Bible in your room is just stuck in your room? Or is that God able to help you when you go to school tomorrow? Is that God able to help you when you go to university tomorrow? Is that God able to help you when you go to the office tomorrow? Is that God able to help us when, when we have governments that make all kinds of decisions? That's, I think, what this chapter in the life of Joseph helps us understand. I want to say three things that may help us. The first is that we have to learn in our lives that the most important person to trust is God. Sometimes we'll put our trust in our mom and dad. Sometimes we'll put it in our husband and wife. Sometimes we'll put it in our employer or employees. But the most important person you can ever put your trust in is God. And I say that because look at verse 41, if you've got a Bible and you can look at it. It says, after two whole years, Pharaoh dreamed. I just want to stop there for a moment because this is a, this is a, nothing in the Bible is, is by accident. After two whole years. What happened two years earlier exactly? Well, it was Pharaoh's birthday. And so on his, two years later, after he had had the cupbearer and the baker come to him on his birthday, two years later, he had another birthday. And God gave Pharaoh dreams on his birthday. I think that's why Pharaoh was so freaked out by these dreams. They weren't just sort of random dreams that happened after he had some pizza or watched a scary movie or something. They put a lot of thought into dreams. And these dreams came to the most powerful man in the world on his birthday, two whole years later. You might remember last week, well, if you were kids, you weren't here last week. You were upstairs. But some of us were here last week. And Pastor Barry made the point of how Joseph was so clear and direct with the cupbearer when he told him about his dreams. He said to him, only remember me when it is all well with you. That's great faith because he knew that God would keep his life. He says, when it's all well with you, please do me the kindness and mention me to Pharaoh because I want to get out of here. For I was indeed stolen out of the land of the Hebrews and here also I have done nothing that they should put me in the pit. So he said, remember me. But we read at the end of the, that chapter, it says, and yet the chief um, cupbearer did not remember Joseph, but forgot him. For two years longer, Joseph stayed in prison. We meet that kind of disappointment in life sometimes, don't we? Human help lets us down. Even Christian help lets us down. We make plans. People make promises to us. We sign contracts. We set expectations. Only to have those around us disappoint us and we're left feeling disillusioned. Has this ever happened to you? You've trusted somebody and they've let you down. I thought about this verse a long time when I first read it. I thought, why? Why in the world would God leave Joseph in jail for two whole years more after he had interpreted the dreams? Why does God let things in our lives go on for such a long time? I wonder if it is so that we don't become so enamored with and reliant upon human help. 
So we don't put all of our eggs in the basket of other people, so to speak. So that we don't become so reliant on human resources that we fail to look to God. One of the Psalms says, I lift my eyes up to the hills. From where does my help come from? My help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. Stop there for a moment. We're going to do this a lot whenever we come to a text that tells us that God made the heavens and the earth. We need to do this because so many people are telling us God didn't make this world. There is some incredible help that comes to us when we think, I've got a really big problem. Who am I going to turn to to help me? Oh, I'm going to turn to the buddy who owns the 7-Eleven store, or I'm going to turn to a doctor who has taken a lot of education, or I'm going to turn to the one who made this world and everything in it. That's God. And so the psalmist says, My help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. He will not let your foot be moved. He who keeps you does not slumber. Behold, he who keeps Israel will neither sleep nor slumber. The Lord is your keeper. The Lord is your shade at your right hand. The sun will not strike you by day nor the moon by night. The Lord will keep you from evil. He will keep your life. The Lord will keep your going out and your coming in from this time forth and forevermore. How quickly we are pulled away from setting our hope on heaven's resources and place them in human resources. You see, sometimes it's our disillusionment with human resources, it's our disappointment with human resources, even Christians, that cause us to look away from mankind to God. Say, God, everyone else and everything else has let me down. But you are the maker of heaven and earth. You don't sleep nor slumber. You know when I get up. You know when I go to sleep. You know where I go. You know what I do. Help me. And so after two whole years, in a single moment, God released Joseph from jail. The second thing that caught my attention as I went through these verses and it's a really important point. I, I don't know how to communicate it well, so I'll give it a stab. But we need to go to God for truth. Human wisdom has significant limitations. I think we know that, right? You go and talk to your mom and dad, and you ask them a the question, and sometimes they say, I just don't have an answer to that. I can help you a little bit, but I just don't know. Sometimes you go to your doctor, and you've got a diagnosis, and you say, well, what's, what's the prognosis? Well, I don't really know. He says, this might happen or this might happen. Sometimes you go to any number of people, and there's limitations to human knowledge. Three times in this text, we are told that the magicians and the wise men could not interpret the dreams of Pharaoh. I'll just read one. It's in verse 8. It says, but there was no one who could interpret the dreams to Pharaoh. It's also found in uh, verse 15 and then also found in verse 24. See, again and again, we're told to think about this fact that the magicians and the wise men of the most powerful country in the world couldn't interpret the dreams. All of these men, with all of their wisdom, with all of their learning, with all of their magic books, with all of their priestcraft and ritual books, with all of their manuals on how to interpret dreams, and they had manuals that were written over hundreds of years that told them how to interpret dreams, they couldn't interpret 
Pharaoh's dream. Three times we are told how they were not able to do that. If you were a Hebrew person and you read this for the first time, you would have known right away the point that the writer was trying to make. He is meaning to slam the Egyptian wise people. He's, he's, he's making a point. You think they're smart? They don't know anything. You think they're smart? They don't know how to interpret the dream. You think they know what's going to happen tomorrow? They don't because they can't interpret the dream. And so the point that is being made is pagan religion lets us down. Ritual and finery lets us down. Magic and dream manuals let us down. You can see where all the tradition in the world gets you. It's nowhere. It has no answers. It's another way of saying that to trust in human wisdom alone is folly. It's futile. It's a dead-end street. There's another story in the Bible where a, a prophet of God stands up against 450 prophets of Baal. And they, you might remember the story, they, they, they built a, uh, each built an altar, um, and they had a bull, and they sacrificed the bull. And then what they decided the contest would be is that they would pray to their God, and the God who answered by fire would be the God who was the powerful God. And so Elijah let the 450 prophets of Baal go first. And they made their altar, and they sacrificed their bull on the altar. And then for the next number of hours, they chanted, and they sung, and they cut themselves, and they went crazy, praying out and calling out to their God. And their God was silent. He had nothing to say. And then Elijah built his altar, put his bull on it, dug a moat around it, poured gallons and gallons and gallons of water on his sacrifice and prayed. And in an instant, God consumed the fire or the, the altar, the bull, and the water. It was another contest there to show that the wise men of the world had no answers when it came to faith. So Joseph answers Pharaoh. He says, it's not in me to answer your dream, but God will give Pharaoh a favorable answer. See, the point is here, in all the midst of history and tradition of Egypt, for hundreds of years, all the wisdom that they had accumulated, all the manuals that they had written, everything that was backed up with the splendor and the power and the might of Egypt was unable to answer Pharaoh's question, tell me what my dream means. And so we wonder, can God play with the big leagues? Can God play with the powerful people of our worlds and our lives? Is God able to stand up to your biology teacher? Is God able to stand with your philosophy teacher? Is God able to stand with your psychiatrist? Can God stand against the scientist who tells you how the world was made or wonders how the world was made? Is God able to bring clarity in the midst of all the gender confusion and the issues of my life? Does God know what the future holds and can he be trusted to guide you? Hands down, yes. He is a God of truth. God speaks to all the issues of our life, the small and the big ones. He knows where we came from. He knows what gives meaning to our life. He knows why there is right and wrong, and he knows what happens when we die. Our world is still trying to find answers to those questions when they're right before us 
in the Word of God. I'm so encouraged that you don't have to have a PhD. You don't have to be a brainiac to respond to the people of the world. You just have to be a willing slave like Joseph. And when somebody asks you a question and you're confused by it, you say, I don't know, but God knows. When you're, at, when you're wrestling with somebody over the fence and you're talking about the world and how it was made and, and they, they, they give you their understanding of the truth and you can say, you know, I don't really understand all the facts, but I know that God created this world and all that's in it. So many questions you can answer by simply going to the word of God and saying, thus says the Lord. The final point is, not only ought we, turn, ought we to turn to God and trust in human, or spiritual resources ahead of human resources, not only are we to trust that God can give us an answer above all the wisdom of the world that we live in, but we need to learn to trust the power of God, the sovereign work of God, because human power is no match for the power of God. Some of you might have been here a number of months ago when we went through the book of Revelation. We stopped at Revelation 4 and 5. And in Revelation 4 and 5, there's a vision of a throne in heaven. And there were three words that we just wanted to embed in your hearts and your minds. The first word was throne. There is a throne in this universe, and it's occupied. God is on that throne. It's the control tower like an airport. It's the control tower of the universe, and God is controlling all things. Secondly, there was a scroll. And on that scroll was writing on inside and out. That every little part of that scroll had writing on it. And we came to understand that that scroll is the plan of God for the world. It's all written on that scroll. And then there was the lamb. And it was the lamb that was able to take the scroll and open it and bring it to fulfillment. Make sure that the plans and the purposes of God actually happened. Well, God is being so merciful to Pharaoh here. He's giving him dreams, and then he's saying, Pharaoh, this is what is going to happen for the next 14 years in your kingdom. That's the difference between the God that we worship and the gods that are in this world. The God that we worship knows what's going to happen tomorrow, next month, next year, 14 years down the road, hundreds of years down the road. Why? Because he controls and guides and directs everything in this world so he can bring about the things that he knows will happen in the years to come. Notice what he says. He says there in verse 32, God has revealed or shown to Pharaoh what he's about to do. The thing is fixed by God. In other words, nobody can change the plan of God. Nobody can say, God, you might think you're strong, but I'm stronger and this is what's going to happen. No, the thing was fixed by God. So just follow with me for a couple minutes as, as we just pull this all together, what we've looked at so far, the sovereignty of God. We see it in the life of Joseph. Remember that God gave Joseph two dreams, two dreams about what would happen 22 years later. We're getting close to them actually coming true. Joseph was sent out by his dad to find his brothers. And as he's out looking for his brothers, it says that he happened to meet a man that was in a field. And as he talked to that man, the man had happened to hear a conversation that his ten brothers have had and said that they had gone about 17 miles to another place. And so Joseph goes down there. That happens to be the road 
the, the, the place through which the main trade route traveled. There happened to be a caravan that was traveling by there that was going to go down to Egypt. They happened to, rather than kill Joseph, sell him to these traders who went down to Egypt. He was happened to be bought by Pharaoh who, uh, or by Potiphar who raised him up in his home. He was happened to be falsely accused and end up in jail. And now at the end of this time in jail, after he had interpreted the dreams of these two men, he happens to find himself in the court of Pharaoh. God was guiding and directing every single one of those circumstances so that 13 years later, Joseph is standing in the court of Pharaoh. We're talking about God's control of people. Remember I said that, that the family of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob were a crazy family. There was so much sin, so much stuff, so much deception in that family. You wonder, how can God ever do anything in that family? And God is so gracious, God is so merciful, God is so powerful that he works even in the midst of our fallenness and our pain. God controls the Canaanites. We talked about how a man named Judah left his family and he went to live in Canaan for almost 20 years. And even there, God guided and directed the people that he crossed paths with in the circumstances of life such that he turned around Judah's life so that Jesus Christ was born in the family of that man. God controls the Egyptians. He's about to determine the whole economy of the greatest country in the world. God provides for the whole world. It will say at the end of it, the whole world came to Egypt for help. He, just, he, he controls the movements of people. He controlled how Jacob and his family would leave the land of Canaan and make their way into Egypt. God controls our minds. Remember, he gave dreams, right? Can you put a dream into somebody's head? God put dreams into the mind of Joseph. God put dreams into the mind of the cupbearer and the baker. God put dreams into the mind of Pharaoh. And then he gave somebody else the ability to understand the dream that God had put into the mind of that particular person. Through those dreams, he knew that Joseph's dreams would come true in 22 years. He knew that the, the cupbearer and the baker's dreams would come true in three days. God knew that the dreams that he gave to Pharaoh would come true in 14 years. And then jog, God jogs the memory of the cupbearer at just the right time to say, there's a man who knows dreams. I was reading this morning in my devotions from Chronicles, and it talks there about the time that God divided the kingdom of Solomon because of his sin. Some of the kingdom went to Rehoboam, some of it went to Jeroboam. And it talks about how this kingdom split and Rehoboam was given advice. He had a problem he had to solve and so he asked the counselors of his father for their advice and they said, well you need to do this, this and this. And then he said, okay, and then he asked his own counselor, guys that had grown up with him, he says, what do you need to do? And he says, well you need to do this, this and this. And so God list, or, um, Rehoboam listened to this group of counselors rather than this group of counselors. Why? The king did not listen to the people because the turn of events came from the Lord to carry out his word, which the Lord had spoken. See, God can even direct the thoughts of minds, Christian and pagan, to bring about his purposes. God is in control of life and death. Remember, he, he said to, the, to one, the cupbearer, he says, you're going to, in three days, you're going to be raised back up to your position. And to the baker, he said, and in three days, you're going to die. 
How does, how can Joseph say that? Because God controls life and death. God determines and controls the weather. He sends the rain and the water on the land so that there's seven years of plenty in the land of Egypt. And then he turns off the tap and he sends scorching winds so that nothing grows for seven years. And he does all of that to be true to his promise to move Abraham's descendants from Canaan to Egypt. Is that your God? Is that how you trust God? Is that how you look at the world through the grid of the sovereign work of God that can even direct the course of the most powerful nation on the earth? Isaiah wrote, To whom will you liken me and make me equal and compare me that we may be alike? Those who lavish gold from the purse and weigh out silver in the scales hire a goldsmith and he makes it into a god and then they fall down and worship it. They lift it on their shoulders, they carry it, they set it in its place, and it stands there. It cannot move from its place. If one cries to it, it does not answer or save him from his trouble. Remember this and stand firm. Recall it to mind, you transgressors. Remember the former things of old. For I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is no one like me, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient time things not yet done, saying, My counsel will stand and I will accomplish my purpose. That's God. So the question of the text is, can you find God in Egypt? With all of its splendor, with all of its riches, with all of its power, with all of its finery, with all of its magic, with all of its wisdom, can you find God in Egypt? Hands down, the answer is yes. God is able to play in the big leagues of your life. It's no context, no contest, loved ones. God is not Im intimidated by your school. God is not intimidated by your boss. God is not intimidated by the politicians of British Columbia. God is not intimidated by the politicians of Ottawa. God is not in intimidated by any man or woman in power anywhere in this world. Don't think that God can't sustain you in your home. Don't think that God can't help you when you go to school tomorrow. Don't think that God can't help you when you go to that university class tomorrow where it seems that your faith is attacked. Don't think that God can't help you when you go to work tomorrow, when you go to that club tomorrow. Don't be afraid. Trust in God. He is powerful, he is sovereign, and he is guiding this world according to his plan. Your life, the life of everyone you're in contact with, the life and, the, uh, and everything in this created world. He created the heavens and the earth. Trust him with your life. God has fixed a time. We're almost done. God has fixed a time. I, I, I am so encouraged by this. Joseph says to Pharaoh, God has fixed a time. It's not going to change, Pharaoh. There's nothing you can do. There's nothing anyone else can do. God has fixed a time. So you better prepare for what's coming. Acts chapter 17. In times of ignorance, God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world. We really do play fast and loose with the judgment of God. 
we really kind of push God to the margins of our life, even as followers of Christ. And yet there is a day coming, the hour of the Lord. He has fixed a day, an immovable day, an unchangeable day, a day in which none of us, no power, no person, no nothing can ever change. He has fixed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness by the man he has appointed. Are you ready for that day? Secondly, there's another day that he's fixed. It says it's appointed unto man once to die, and then the judgment. Not a happy thought, but it is a happy thought, actually. No death is a random death. No death is a chance death. God knows the number of days that every single person will ever live before they have lived one. You can't extend your life by more days than God has determined. You can't undercut the days of life that God has determined for you. God has determined the day that you will die. So trust God with every day. God, help me to live each day for your glory and for your goodness because I know there's a day coming when you're going to call me home. And finally, God has fixed a day when Jesus Christ is coming back. He says that that day, there is that day, that hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven nor the Son, but only the Father. People, even Christians, have begun to doubt whether Jesus Christ is ever coming back. <laughs> like the Bible 2,000 years ago, it's been so long and he's not coming back. Do you ever get that thought once in a while in your head? Oh, it's been 2,000 years. Can I really trust that promise? You can fix that promise in your head because God never breaks his word. God knows the future. He has fixed a day in which Jesus Christ is coming back. Hallelujah. So here we are at the Lord's table. This is a table for those who have trusted in Christ as their Lord and Savior. So if you're a Christian here today and if you have got a living relationship with Jesus Christ, this table is for you. It's not a closed table. The body of Christ has been broken for you. It's such an intensely personal thing. He's, he, yes, Jesus has died for the world, but he's died for individuals in the world who will put their faith and trust in him. It's a beautiful thing to know that Jesus loves me. But as we're preparing this morning, what I want you to do, I'm going to ask you to do two things. We don't often do these kind of things, but I was thinking about this in my own life. Have you ever thought about the circumstances surrounding your coming to Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior? The amazing circumstances and the providence of God, how he led you. It's different for every one of us. People that came into our life, people that crossed our path, maybe the home that we grew up in that pushed us to Christ or pushed us away from Christ. Maybe a crazy weather storm somewhere that we're in. I don't know what it was, but you who know Christ today know the circumstances which God ordained that brought you into a living relationship with Christ. Thank God for that this morning. Just spend a couple moments and maybe there's specific individuals that you've never thought of. Uh, for a while, and just say, God, thank you for sending so-and-so in my life. Thank you, God, for opening my eyes. Thank you, God, for letting me hear this, but thank God. And secondly, in light of that, because of God's power, greater than any power in this world, do you have somebody in your life that you've been praying for? Maybe in particular that they would come to know Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. God can do it. God is in control. 
And so maybe as you're praying, say, God, as you saved me, save Paul. Work the circumstances out in his life. Bring people into his path. Manipulate weather if you have to. Manipulate his boss. Manipulate the school. Lord, not manipulate. That's the wrong word. But, but work in those circumstances so that they come to the place where they say, I need Jesus. And just as God saved you, he can save them. Trust God to work savingly in somebody that you love today. Father, we thank you for your word today. As we gather around this table now, I pray that uh, one, our hearts would be filled with amazement at the way your sovereign power worked even to bring Christ to the point where he died at just the right time. And I pray that our hearts would be filled with gratitude, those of us who have a relationship with you through Christ. Just thankfulness because we are children of God. And you worked in such a miraculous way to save us. I thank you, God, that you're not only a God of my life, my world, my world here in Parksville, but you are a God of Canada. You are a God of North America. You are a God of this world. You are a God of this universe. And you guide and control it. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.